recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia on Talk Show. Today is Friday, Friday, whoa, I had the month wrong last week. Friday, August 31st, 2012. Last week I still thought it was July. I apologize for that. I'm old and confused. I have a couple of things to talk about. I um, assisted ProSync this week in getting his sites back online. I caught some criticism over that because one of ProSync's, um, one of the websites he hosts is Zion Crime Factory, and, and the, the proprietor of that site is basically a, an anti-Christian moron. I don't, I don't mind saying that. And I put him back online. Well, I put him back online because that's part of the package. I promised Mike Delaney that I would get his sites back online, and I'm not going to um, to pick and choose, right? I'm going to put all the sites back online, and that's what I did. And, and that was um, that was a personal favor, and I kept my word. And I don't regret it one bit. That's just the way it is. So if anybody wants to criticize me for that, well, they could just go take a long walk off a short pier, as my great-grandmother used to say. I'll put it nicely. The Saxon Messenger, the July Saxon Messenger went out last night. Um, I wrote an editorial on it, which basically explained everything that happened to Christagenia, why it happened, to, to prosync.org, and, and some of the other websites that were taken offline, or, or, or that the ADL tried to take offline. None of the sites that I host or the sites that I publish are offline. They're all online. It, it's, I had a couple of small technical problems with a few of them, and all those problems are, for the most part, cleared up now. Um, Prosync.org will remain up and running. Christagenia.org, KinsmanRedeemer.com, FGCP.org. All of the Christagenia sites and the sites related to people that know me will, will remain up and running. The ADL will shut none of them down. The, um, I have a, a couple of emails concerning last night's program, last week's program, and, and the parable of the rich man and the storehouse, and, and some of the things that I said about the wealthy. I should have answered them tonight, and I'm going to put them off until next week. But the people that sent me emails who were who overly concerned with some of the things that I said, I'll respond to that next week. I'm not going to respond to it now. I'm, I'm not, I got a few notes to put together. I want to go back over some of that material. I'm sorry you didn't get it. I guess if you didn't get it, I didn't explain it good enough. It's um, real Christians should not pursue riches, and yes, wealth is relative, and real Christians should not be laying up gold and silver for the future. That's what the parable says. That's what the epistle of James says. I'll discuss that again next week. The... um. The, the Saxon Messenger, you know, this, this issue with the ADL and free speech and control of the Internet, that these issues are very important. And I'm not saying that the article that I've written for the Saxon Messenger is, is the article to explain those issues. 
it, it may, you know, an, any article could be better written, right? Any article could be more emphatic. Any article could be um, could, could be given more historical embellishments and, and, and citations. None of that matters, right? What, what matters is that the, the news be spread, that the ADL is bullying, that the, the, the Anti-Defamation League has set itself up as an authority on what hate is and what proper um, religious, historical, political discourse is. The ADL is not an authority. They're a player in the game. They're a political organization. They don't belong setting policy. They shouldn't be allowed to bully Internet service providers. So I would ask all my listeners to post links to... Um, to my article, The Demise of Free Speech on the Internet, which is on the front page of the Saxon Messenger site right now, to post that article around and help get it some exposure and, and help bring the ADL bullying of Internet service providers to light. Because it can't be. White people cannot allow that to continue. If you want to preserve any of your freedoms, you have to stand up for them. If you let the Jew bully you out of your freedoms, well, the next thing you know, you're going to be bent over a bed somewhere with your pants around your ankles, and the Jew is going to be standing behind you. That's the way it is. Post those articles around and get them exposure. Get the ADL bullying of Internet service providers. Get the word out that that's going on and get it exposure. Because it's a, it's a severe infringement on our basic American rights to free speech and free expression. And if we cede them, then they're gone, and all our rights are gone. It's a slippery slope. We have to stand up. That article needs exposure. And other articles like it. I've seen it mentioned on um, Newsnet 14's website and, and um, several other websites. Um, Alaskan Pride, I think, or, or it, it's um, I forget the exact name of the website. I'm sorry, but I've seen it on several websites. I've seen information posted, but most of the alternative me alternative media that I've seen so far, I, I really haven't heard anything about this. Not not anything of note. And the whole Internet should be up in arms about it. But what's really funny, and, and I still have it in a tab, I have an article in a tab, and I tried to bring it up again, and it didn't work. It, it was a different ad. Maybe you could do it. Maybe it will work. There's an article in the New York Times entitled WikiLeaks and Free Speech, and the banner ad is for one-on-one -on -one Internet, right? <laughs> I thought that was... <laughs> I thought that was incredibly inappropriate, <laughs> considering my experience at one-on-one -on -one Internet and, and free speech. That, that's just um, a slap in the face. Well, well, that article, The Demise of Free Speech on the Internet, it, it needs exposure. That, that this happened in, in America today needs exposure, that the ADL is bullying Internet service providers to drop so-called hate websites, and, and it's the ADL defining what is hate and what is not, and, and the ADL is a, basically a political organization. That needs exposure. 
So I would ask everybody that listens to my podcasts, and, and I don't know how many pod, how many downloads. It's hard for me to tell how many downloads any one of my podcasts is going to get throughout the course of the year. It could be between 500 and, and 10,000. But, but um, I, I would ask anybody listening to, to post links to that article on Facebook or post links to that, uh, to that article on, on mainstream media sites or, or wherever you can and, and try to get out the word that the ADL is bullying Internet service providers about dropping websites and therefore that they are revoking the rights that they are in, that they are infringing on the civil rights of Americans to free speech that's exactly what they're doing and they're getting away with it and if they continue to get away with it it might be Christagenia today or it might be prosync.org tomorrow but it, in a, in a, in a couple of years it's going to be the family research council you won't be able to say anything Christian on the internet in a couple of years if the ADL gets away with it today. And you won't be able to, you surely, surely won't be able to say anything pro-white, that's for sure. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. Tonight I'm going to present the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13 part of an ongoing series, obviously, right? I'm not going to recap last week's program. I'm going to start right with Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Then there were some present at that time who reported to him concerning the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And replying, he said to them, do you suppose that those Galileans had been wrongdoers beyond all the Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I say to you, but if you do not repent, all of you likewise shall be destroyed. Now, now Luke often took pains to make his accounts historically accurate. For example, in Luke chapter 3, where he lists those ruling over the various districts in Palestine at the time of the birth of Christ in Judea and in Syria, right? Yet there are no other records outside of Luke of the event of the Tower of Siloam, which we've yet to see mentioned here in verse 4. And neither is there any other account of the destruction of these Galileans, which is mentioned here. Yet there were other similar events recorded by Josephus which described the many problems that occurred during the tenure of Pilate as the procurator in Judea. Now most of those problems were due to the inevitable clash of Judean and Roman cultures. And the relatively new religion, and it was relatively new at the time of Christ, of the worship of the emperor which began to rise in the days of Augustus. However, there seems also to be a certain civil discord and unrest which is evident in history wherever a Canaanite, Edomite element takes a predominant role in society. And that was fully evident in America during the 1960s and 70s. 
An example of, of the unrest, I'm going to read a lengthy example of the unrest in Judea in the time of Pilate, and, and, and with this we might get a better grip on what the civil situation was at this time. It, it, it was pretty unruly quite often. And this example is from Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 9, Sections 2 through 4, as Whiston numbered his edition. Now Pilate, who was sent as procurator into Judea by Tiberius, sent by night those images of Caesar that are called ensigns into Jerusalem, the worship of the emperor, right? This caused a very great tumult among the Jews, among the Judeans, when it was day. For those who were near them were astonished at the sight of them, as indications that their laws were trodden underfoot, for those laws do not permit any sort of image to be brought into the city. Nay, besides the indignation which the citizens had themselves at this procedure, a vast number of people came running out of the country. These came zealously to Pilate, to Caesarea, and besought him to carry those ensigns out of Jerusalem and to preserve for them their ancient laws inviolable. But upon Pilate's denial of their request, they fell down prostrate upon the ground and continued immovable in that posture for five days and as many nights. On the next day, Pilate sat on his tribunal in the open marketplace and called to him the multitude as desirous to give them an answer. And then he gave a signal to the soldiers that they should all by agreement at once surround the Judeans with their weapons. So the band of soldiers stood around the Judeans in three ranks. The Judeans were under the utmost consternation at that unexpected sight. Pilate also said to them that they should be cut in pieces unless they would allow Caesar's images. We have the traditions in Judea against the standing against the official empirical religion of the Romans and gave intimation to the soldiers to draw their naked swords. Hereupon the Judeans, as it were at, one signal fell down in vast numbers together and exposed their bare necks and cried out that they were sooner ready to be slain than that their law should be transgressed. Hereupon Pilate was greatly surprised at their prodigious superstition and gave orders that the ensign should be presently carried out of Jerusalem. Pilate seated. After this, he raised another disturbance by expending that sacred treasure which is called Corbin, the, the gifts at the temple, right? Upon aqueducts, whereby he brought water from the distance of 50 miles. At this, the multitude had great indignation, and when Pilate was come to Jerusalem, they came around his tribunal and made a clamor at it. Now, when he was apprised aforehand of this disturbance, he mixed his own soldiers in their armor with the multitude and ordered them to conceal themselves under the clothes of private men and not, indeed, to use their swords, but with their staves to beat those who made the clamor. He then gave the signal from his tribunal to do as he had bidden them. 
Now the Judeans were so sadly beaten that many of them perished by the stripes they received, and many of them perished as trodden to death by themselves. By which means the multitude was astonished at the calamity of those who were slain and held their peace. So we see the what, what from the Judean viewpoint would be the Roman oppression of the people and beating of the people because they wouldn't basically because they wouldn't go along with the Roman state religion, right? And we have an idea of the the the, the, the this the events like this being fairly common at this time, we have an idea of the civil climate in Judea under the time of Pontius Pilate. Luke chapter 13, verse 4, and we're going to talk about this some more. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam had fallen and killed them. Do you suppose, the words of Christ, that they had been debtors beyond all the men who are dwelling in Jerusalem? No, I say to you, but if you do not repent, all of you in like manner shall be destroyed. There's a pool of Siloam mentioned in John chapter 9, and it was in Jerusalem. The tower of Siloam was likely related to the pool. This is its only mention in Scripture. The lesson here is that judgment comes from God. This is the attitude of Christ. This is the attitude being expressed by Christ. Judgment comes from God, and it is often a punishment for sin. Now, the tower fell. We're not told how the tower fell, but 18 men were killed, right? That's, and, and, and if these people in Judea don't repent, they'll be destroyed in like manner. Pilate, a government officer, right, mixed the blood of these certain Galileans with their sacrifices. He had them slain. And the people that are still alive... If they do not repent, Christ says, they'll be destroyed in like manner. It is not a coincidence that the English word crisis is derived directly from the Greek word krisis, and the Greek word krisis means judgment. Whenever there is a crisis, Christians should always view it as a judgment from God. Remember the parable of, 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 the, um, of the sparrows where, where Christ says that not one falls without the acknowledgement of God in heaven. Not one falls, not one bird falls to the ground without the knowledge of God in heaven. Every time there's a crisis, Christians should understand. For whatever reason, it's fine. it may be punishment for sin. It might be for some other reason. And there are crises for other reasons, reasons other than punishment. Christians should understand that a crisis is a judgment from God. And here we also see the words of Christ uphold. And a lot of people in Christian identity don't like this. We see the words of Christ uphold the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 13. That if one does good works, he has nothing to fear of anyone. 
But if one's works are not good, a tyrannical government is one device whereby Yahweh God punishes the disobedient among his people. We see Pilate mixed the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. Pilate representing the Roman government, being the procurator of Judea. Pilate mixed the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. He slaughtered them. He had them slaughtered. And Christ asks if those men were sinners above all the other men of their nation. That's all he asks, because he understands the judgment of, of, well, he is God. Christ then warns those who are living that they repent, lest the same thing would befall them. That warning fully corroborates Paul's words at Romans chapter 13. And even unjust governments, as we suffer in America today, are a punishment upon the disobedient. However, it is also clear in Scripture, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 21, and I will cite that in part shortly, that the righteous often suffer on account of the wicked among them, and that the sword of Yahweh is employed in the hands of chosen chastisers, which in the, in the case of Ezekiel chapter 1 was the Babylonians who were about to invade Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophecy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus say, thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the north. I'm sorry, from the south to the north. That all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath. It shall not return any more. It shall not return to its sheath anymore. The sword of Ezekiel chapter 21 is also that same sword referred to by Paul in Romans chapter 13. Of course, punishing an entire nation, Yahweh brought in another nation. He raised up the Babylonians to carry Israel, the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem for the most part, into captivity. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, every soul must be subject to more powerful authorities every one of us. Since there is no authority except from Yahweh, then those who are, those who are authorities, by Yahweh are they appointed. The cruel Babylonians were appointed by Yahweh to chastise the remnant of Israel at Jerusalem. 
both good figs and bad, both the righteous and the wicked. Romans 13, verse 2. Consequently, one opposing the authority, Yahweh said that anybody who would submit to the Babylonians would live. Anybody who opposed the Babylonians would die by the sword. That's a matter of prophecy. Because he, he preordained that the remnant at Jerusalem go off into Babylonian captivity. Therefore, Paul writes in Romans 13.2, Consequently, one opposing the authority has opposed the ordinance of Yahweh. And they who are in opposition will themselves receive judgment. That's a lesson of the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, is it not? The Israelites were told not to uh, seek help from the Egyptians because it wasn't going to do them any good, which is another example of that. Not to oppose the decree of God that they be taken into captivity. The good and the wicked, the righteous and the evil. For rulers are not a terror to good work, but to evil. We're not punished for our good works. We're punished for our bad or for our acceptance of evil. Now, do you desire to not be fearful of the authority? Practice good, and you will have approval from it. A servant of Yahweh is to you for good. But if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. The same sword of Ezekiel chapter 21. The same sword by which Pilate mixed the blood of those sacrifices that the Galileans were making. Mixed the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices that they were making. But if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh, whoever he chooses to be his chastiser, in this case it's Pilate, in Ezekiel's case it's the Babylonians, it's Nebuchadnezzar. A servant of Yahweh is to you for good, but if you practice evil, be fearful, for not without purpose will he bear the sword. Indeed, a servant of Yahweh is an avenger with wrath to he who has practiced evil. Christians should be aloof from the evil world governments. They should be aloof from tyrannical governments. Christians should see those governments as chastisers of the wicked. Christians, doing the will of their God, pray that they themselves do not suffer that chastisement. Verse 5. On which account to be subordinate is a necessity, not because of indignation, but because of conscience. For this reason, you also pay tribute. They are ministers or servants of Yahweh, obstinately persisting in this same thing, Therefore, render to all debts, to whom tribute, tribute, to whom taxes, taxes, to whom reverence, whoever deserves your respect, reverence, to whom dignity, dignity, 
In other words, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's so that you can be free to give unto God what is God's, right? You owe nothing. You owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another, he who loves his brother, of course, has fulfilled the law. That's the Christian commission. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust, and any other commandment is summarized in the saying to it, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you, who does not practice evil, you're not required to love your evil-doing brother. I know that the King James really botched the translation of Romans 13.10. I won't apologize for it, but I can correct it. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. Likewise, seeing the time, that hour we are already to be aroused out of sleep, for now it is nearer to our deliverance than when we had believed. Christians should always anticipate their deliverance, right? The night is advanced and the day is drawn near. Therefore, we must put away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And if you suffer as a Christian, you're rewarded for it more greatly, right? As in the day, we shall walk honorably, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lasciviousness and licentiousness, not in strife and jealousy. Rather, put on Prince Yahshua Christ and do not fashion for lust provision of the flesh. The attitude Paul presents towards tyrannical government in Romans chapter 13 is the very same attitude which Christ presents here in Luke chapter 13. It's also the very same attitude where Christ, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, told Pilate, John 19, 11, you do not have any authority over me if it was not given to you from above. So while we should despise evil, and, and of course we should, we have to understand that government tyranny is a result of the sin of the wicked people among us. And tyrannical government is a punishment on men for either the wicked things that they do or the wicked things that they permit in their community. We can all look at the average American, that the average white American in, in Kentucky or, or, or Georgia or, or, or wherever, Montana, Iowa, and, and mostly the average white American is fairly moral and upright for the most part. We all sin, right? But today they sit in their churches and they accept all sorts of evil. They have televisions in their living rooms and they accept all sorts of evil. So they deserve this punishment. Punishment. This tyrannical government is a chastisement from God. Romans 13. Christ supports the words of Paul in Romans 13, right here in Luke. That's my point. 
Luke 13, 6. Then he spoke this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit in it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, the vine dresser says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure, and so then it may produce fruit in the future. But otherwise, if not, you shall cut it down. From Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem which finally happened about 456, 457 B.C., unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, 69 weeks total. And the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Of course, he was cut off for us, right? And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease because he became the ultimate sacrifice, right? And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So we see that the Messiah shall be cut off and the people shall be punished for it. That which is determined, that judgment which is determined from God shall be poured upon the desolate. The 70 weeks of Daniel are periods of seven years. The half a week, or three, three and a half years, of the confirmation of the covenant are the three years and then part of a fourth of the waiting for fruit on the fig tree. Jerusalem is the fig tree here, and it bears no fruit. Therefore, after the ministry of Christ, which ends which, which ends with his having been cut off, but not for himself. Jerusalem was the fig tree to be cut down in the parable. The cutting down actually took place after nearly 40 years, when the city was destroyed by the people of the prince, as it says in Daniel, meaning the people of Messiah the prince, and therefore Paul told the Romans, that Satan, the Edomite Jews at Jerusalem, would be destroyed under their feet in Romans 
The Romans played several roles. They played the Avengers that Paul explains in Romans chapter 13 were the chosen chastisers of God to destroy the wicked city because they had no good works. They also played the kinsmen avengers for Christ since the Romans were themselves of the tribe of Judah. The three and a half years of the ministry of Christ is therefore witnessed in Daniel chapter 9 and it's witnessed in this parable. It's also witnessed in the Gospel of John by counting the feasts which are mentioned there, both the Passover feast and the intervening feasts. And there's a list of verses that could be witnessed to that, John 2.13, John 10.22, and John 11.55 being among them. The ministry of Christ was three and a half years. It's unfortunate there was a book, and, and it, it, at one time... It had a modicum of popularity in, in Christian identity circles. There was a book by a, a, a man who I thought was a pretty brilliant man named Charles Totten. He was a professor. He tried to claim that the ministry of Christ was only one year and proved that by the, um, by, by the statement that he came to preach an acceptable year of the Lord and a couple of other passages in Scripture. That idea is refuted soundly by the witnesses which I've just provided. The ministry of Christ was certainly three and a half years. Luke 13, verse 10. Then he was teaching in one of the assembly halls on the Sabbath, and behold, a woman having a spirit of sickliness for 18 years... The Codex Bazai has a woman who was with sickness of spirit. And she was hunched over, or literally bent forward, but she was probably what we would call a hunchback, and not able to straighten up completely. And seeing her, Yahshua called out to her and said, Woman, you have been released from your sickness. And he laid the hands upon her. And immediately she was restored and extolled Yahweh. Then the assembly hall leader responded, being irritated that Yahshua had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the crowd that there are six days on which it is necessary to work. Therefore, upon their coming, you should heal, and not on the day of the Sabbath. Imagine that. The insolence of the Jew is fully manifest, and that his own perceptions reflected in his trivial rules and definitions are greater than a miraculous power which could only have come from God himself. That's the insolence of the Jew. So now we know what we're dealing with today, right? Today we see such Phariseeism once again in the hundreds of thousands of laws and regulations which now govern our society and which are only extant these last hundred years or so with the rise of the Jew into positions of power and government. I don't see why we don't see that historical pattern. I don't see why Christians don't perceive that historical pattern. Whenever you put a Jew in government, you end up with Phariseeism. You end up with endless bureaucracy 
you, you end up with tens of thousands of reams of paper written with laws that no man could understand and which no man could possibly keep. Whenever you see that, you know that Satan's in control. Verse 15. And the prince answered him and said, Hypocrites, would every one of you on the Sabbath not release his bull or ass from the crib and lead it off to drink? Now she is a daughter of Abraham, who was bound by the adversary, behold, 18 years. Was it not necessary to release her from those bonds on the day of the Sabbath? And upon his saying these things, all those opposing him were disgraced. And the whole crowd rejoiced at all the notable things being done by him. So at least the crowd was on his side, the common people. There is a passage found in the Dead Sea Scrolls which independently demonstrates for us the mentality of the people at the time in a country dominated by pharisaical thought. This is apparent even though the Qumran sect, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were not Pharisees. The Qumran sect actually despised the Pharisees because the Pharisees they considered as agents for Rome, the Pharisees being friendly and cooperating with the Romans. The Qumran sect hated the Romans in every regard. They were very anti-government. From the scroll designated 4Q271, fragment 5, column 1, a portion of what is commonly known as the Damascus document, it says, No one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath day. And if it has fallen into a well or a pit, he should not take it out on the Sabbath. And any living man who falls into a place of water or a well, no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope, or a utensil. The Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, and as we obviously see, as well as the Qumran sect, judged men according to their own sense of self-righteousness, which they acquired according to their following of rituals and regulations. They did not judge man with mercy and pure judgment and righteousness. Here we see that Yahweh despises that judgment. He despises men judging according to their own sense of self-righteousness, according to their following of rituals and regulations. Hosea 6.6 6, which Christ is recorded as having quoted in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Do not judge your brother self-righteously. Seek first to understand his troubles and his predicament. Seek first to help him. 
the Pharisees wanted to kill Christ because he made manifest their hypocrisy. And he threatened the perception of authority that they had in the eyes of the people. The Pharisees did not care about righteousness. They cared about their own power. If you convince yourself in your mind that you are righteous, then you're going to tend naturally to seek to rule over your brethren because your, your, your righteousness, your sense of righteousness is fleshly. People that insist that they keep the whole law and fail in no point, they usually fall right into that category. People that feel that they've acquired their righteousness through their own performance of rituals, then they usually fall into that category. That leads to self-righteousness. The plot against Christ already began to culminate and was explained earlier in Luke, in chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, where it says, And from that time of his coming forth, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press upon him cleverly and question him provokingly concerning many things, laying in wait for him to catch something from his mouth. And the events described here must have merely exacerbated that situation. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Then he said, What is the kingdom of Yahweh like, and to what should I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard, which a man taking casts into his garden, and it grows and results in a tree, and the birds of heaven nest in its branches. From Matthew 13, we see a similar, a, a very similar statement, maybe a re record of the same statement from a different perspective. He laid forth another parable, saying to them, The kingdom of the heavens is like a grain of mustard, which a man taking is sowed in his field, which is indeed the smallest of all the seeds. But when it grows, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of heaven come and nest in its branches. From Daniel chapter 4, so that we get an idea of the way this phrase, birds of heaven, is used. From Daniel chapter 4, the prophet interprets the book of Nezar's vision of a great tree, he interprets it as the Babylonian Empire. And he says in part, The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and then it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon which whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. And here it is evident that just as the tree is not a literal tree, the beast of the field and the fowls of heaven need not be literal. From the New American Standard Bible, Isaiah chapter 18, verse 1, Alas, O land of whirring wings. I'll read the entire Isaiah chapter 18. I'm sorry, it's short. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, 
which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the waters. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. For thus Yahweh has told me. I will look for my dwelling place quietly. Like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the, as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey, for the fowls of heaven, and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them. And all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought unto Yahweh of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation, whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts, even Mount Zion. The end of Isaiah 18 sounds much like the wedding supper of the Lamb described in Revelation chapter 19. My point here is that the beasts of the field and the birds of prey or the fowls of heaven are not to be taken literally. From Revelation chapter 18, after these things I saw another messenger descending from heaven having great authority. And the earth is illuminated from his effulgence. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen. And it has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And they are not literal birds, just like the birds in Isaiah aren't literal birds, just like the birds. In Daniel chapter 4, aren't literal feathered birds. Because from of the wine of the passion of her fornication fell all the nations. And the kings of the earth fornicated with her. And the merchants of the earth are enriched from the power of her wantonness. It is evident that the phrase birds of heaven it's evident in Revelation chapter 18 that every unclean and hated bird has a connotation much greater than that of simply feathered birds. The unclean and hated birds of Revelation 18 are not feathered birds. They're people. The birds of these scriptures are not literal feathered birds, but rather along with the phrase, beasts of the field. These terms are allegorical pejoratives, which refer to peoples, and ostensibly to non-Adamic peoples. The white race, both at its creation and after the time of the flood, was the smallest of all the races. 
it grew into a very great tree. And it is the only race which all of the world's other races insist upon living amongst. It is the only race which even considers freely offering shelter and a means of subsistence to all of the other races. Once it is realized, as I would assert, that the other, the non-Adamic, the non-white races are very likely the bastard offspring of what the Bible calls fallen angels. And the beast creation of God, then the propriety of the pejoratives used to describe them becomes manifest. The kingdom of Yahweh is without doubt the white Adamic race on earth once it's restored to the favor of its God. For now, the beasts of the field and all the unclean and hateful birds nest in its branches. For now. And again he said, To what do I compare the kingdom of Yahweh? It is like leaven, which a woman taking conceals in three measures of flour, until when it is entirely leavened. The word measure is a satan. It's actually a specific Hebrew measure, which is equivalent to about three dry gallons. I'm always asked about this parable. There are a lot of conjectures as to what the three measures may denote. And any educated guess, for my part, would be difficult to ridicule. I'll make my own. I believe that the three measures are in the legitimate sense, not in the illegitimate sense that that the word is used in mainstream Protestant circles. The three measures are really three dispensations of God's kingdom in the Adamic age. The first was represented by the Melchizedek priesthood, the preachers of righteousness, of which Noah was the eighth, which we see in 2 Peter 2.5, right? The second dispensation was the Levitical priesthood. The third dispensation is the Christian era, when every man is a priest over his own household, 2 Peter 2.9. There are the three measures as far as I can guess, because it's only conjecture, right? Verse 22. And he passed through each city and village teaching. And making the journey to Jerusalem. Then someone said to him, Prince, are those being preserved but few? And he said to him, Strive to enter through the narrow door or through the narrow gate, which is more famous, right? Because many, I say to you, shall seek to enter, and they shall not prevail. After which, the master of the house would arise and bar the door. And you, standing outside, begin then to knock at the door, saying, Master, open for us. And he replying shall say to you, this is important, this reply is important in understanding this parable, right? 
I know not from where you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and we have drank before you, and you have taught in our streets. And he shall speak to you saying, and the answer is important, I know not from where you are. Depart from me all who work at injustice. There are parables and teachings of Christ which have to do solely with the children of Israel, such as the parable of the ten virgins, they are all virgins, right? Or the Sermon on the Mount. And then there are parables and teachings of Christ which concern outsiders or those among us who do not actually belong, such as the parable of the wheat and the tares or the parable of the net in Matthew chapter 13. Even many Christian Israel identity teachers get the two confused. So they come up with the idea that not all Israel is going to be saved, right? Like fools, when the Bible says that clearly all Israel is going to be saved. Christ told us, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 16, and I'll read it, the law and the prophets were until John, until John the Baptist, right? From then, the kingdom of Yahweh is proclaimed, and all force their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and she, being divorced from a man, commits adultery marrying. And while men, men cannot keep the law, we never have. We've never kept the law. The apostles even admit, Acts chapter 15, do not lay a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which our fathers could not keep, right? All men have fallen short and have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. However, Yahweh, Yahweh is God, and he indeed will keep his own law, there's no doubt. His people are promised and granted mercy, and Yahweh has promised not to put away his wife, but to betroth Israel once again. He is not going to marry somebody else. He is going to reject all others. From Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, a promise to the children of Israel. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. If Yahweh accepts anyone in place of Israel, then he commits adultery. He breaks his own law. God can't break his own law. That can't happen. God can't break the law. We can break the law. We're all going to break the law. We've all broken the law. God doesn't break the law. And that's the point that Christ is making here in referencing adultery in relation to those who would force their way into the kingdom and saying that God will not commit adultery. Those forcing their way into the kingdom of God shall be rejected because they are not of the bride. They are not of the children of Israel. Yahweh says in Amos chapter 3, and I'll read the first three verses, 
Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, family, key word there, which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? In order to understand the rejection of people from the company of God, we need to look no further than the answer supplied here. I know not from where you are. Yahweh tells Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He also asks, can two walk together unless they be agreed by two? It means Yahweh and Israel. This leaves little room for other parties, since Yahweh knew only Israel. And since, as Paul tells us at Romans 8.29, those whom he has known beforehand, he has also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his son, for him to be firstborn among many brethren. We'll continue with this theme momentarily. Luke 13, verse 28. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you should see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of Yahweh, but you are being cast outside. And they shall arrive, and this is important, and they shall arrive from east and west, from north and south, and they shall recline in the kingdom of Yahweh, and behold, those who are last shall be first and those who are first shall be last. Isaiah chapter 43 tells us who they are that shall arrive from east and west and from north and south. I'll read from verse 1. But now, saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. This is speaking of the real dispersion of the children of Israel, which started to take place around 745 AD. I'm sorry, 745 B.C. 745 years before the birth of Christ. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. He has no care for any of the other people of the world. He only has care for the children of Israel. Period. 
That's exactly what this is saying. I will bring thy seed, thy offspring, from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. For everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. And of course, it's Yahweh who calls us by his name. We don't call ourselves by his name. We don't make the choice. He makes the choice. He's given us the choice in the scripture. His choice is the children of Israel. Isaiah chapter 43 tells us that he gave up everybody else for the children of Israel. He doesn't care about anybody else. It is the children of Israel who were promised through the prophet to be gathered from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west and delivered salvation. And therefore, it must be they alone to whom Christ refers here in Luke chapter 13. As Christ in Matthew 5.17 said, you should not believe that I have come to dismiss the law or the prophets. I have come not to dismiss, but to fulfill them. Isaiah chapter 45 promises salvation for all of Israel, all of the offspring of the children of Israel, without exception. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with, with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it. I'm going to, going to employ this later on. In, in the next paragraph, in another embellishment on his presentation. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. In other words, the plain writing of the Old Testament, that's what we get in the New Testament. The meanings of words don't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The promises and the, the objects and subjects of the promises don't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The plain words of the prophets are what we get. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed, the offspring of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. In other words, there's no substitute for the children of Israel. Replacement theologians are clowns. They're all clowns. They're liars. They're flat liars. They're nothing else but liars. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, meaning the surviving children of Israel from the captivities of Assyria and Babylon. I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, seek 
speak righteousness, I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. They went off into paganism. Tell ye and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God besides me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. Then unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. The assertions in Isaiah chapter 43 that Yahweh created and formed Israel demonstrate that the children of Israel were a part of the creation of God. The promises of salvation, which we just read, for all of Israel in Isaiah chapter 45, also hearken back to the creation account. Paul tells us that the children of Israel were appointed beforehand, Romans 8, conformed to the image of his Son, And he also tells us that Christ himself was the likeness of the invisible God, firstborn of all the creation, because he is Yahweh. All the creation meaning the Adamic creation. Why? Because it is for him to be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see that the Adamic creation alone is in the image of God. By this we know what the image of God is. It is the white Adamic man, and this is explicit in the scripture. That this only refers to the Adamic creation is proven by the way Paul uses the term translated creation. Or in the King James Version, it's creature in Romans 8.39 that it is limited to a specific kind in the total creation. For instance, the Adamic race, in this instance, as opposed to other kinds in the creation. For instance, angels. Read the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, since the children of Israel were appointed beforehand, and they were already conformed to the image of God when they were created, they bear the image of God. Speaking to the Israelite men of Corinth, the Dorian Greeks of Corinth were indeed descended from Israelites. Paul demonstrates that. It's proven in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he tells them their fathers were under the cloud in the sea with Moses 
Paul tells those Corinthian Greek Israelites that man is the image and glory of God. By the term man, Paul means Adamic man because he equates those two terms in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the use of these terms are limited to the children of Israel, to the Aryan race of the Dorian Greeks who descended from them, and to the wider Adamic race, we see that the image of God is Adamic man uncorrupted from the original creation of God. For that reason, Seth was in his image, but no descendant of Cain was ever said to be in his image. Yet Christ told those who opposed him that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be uprooted. Likewise, in Jeremiah, Yahweh said to the race-mixed element of Judah at Jerusalem, in Jeremiah 2.21, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then? are thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. So there are clearly a people here of whom it may be said by God, I know not from where you are, because they're a strange vine unto him because they are not a part of his original creation. This is the basis Christ gives here for their exclusion from his kingdom. If your ancestors are not all found in the Adamic race, you are a plant which he did not plant, because the Bible is the book of life, and evidently you are not written into it. The only race of man which Yahweh took credit for creating in Scripture is the race of Adam. I went out of my way to explain the image of God here to address some of the kinists. I've had words with some of the kinists in certain forums. I won't mention where. The kinists, the, the kinists that I've met are just clowns, right? They profess to be Christians. They're no better than Judeo-Christians. They're idiots. One kinist told me recently that just because Aryan men are said to be in the image of God in the Bible does not mean that it is not also true of the other races simply because it was not said of them. That is Jewish, humanist, and universalist reasoning if I ever heard as much. That trash is straight out of the mind of a Jew. We cannot extrapolate specific statements in Scripture to everyone simply because they were not explicitly excluded. Your grandfather's will may not specifically exclude the Mexicans down the road from your inheritance in the family farm. So should you share it with them? Kinists seem to go out of their way to make excuses 
for the existence of Negroes and Mexicans and every other unclean and hateful bird. Can a side mat? They all think like Jews. They may as well be Catholic. That's just a side note. On pages 220 and 221 of Mein Kampf, another side note, Another embellishment on tonight's presentation. As it appears in the Murphy translation, Adolf Hitler said that it is the Aryan who is the creator and custodian of civilization. And he is true. The Adamic man is the creator and custodian of civilization. The white man. There's no apologies for that. Then on page 216, he said, to undermine the existence of human culture by exterminating its founders and custodians, he's referring again to the Aryan, would be an execrable crime in the eyes of those who believe that the folk idea lies at the basis of human existence. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God, Adolf Hitler believed that the Aryan man was the image of God of Genesis, and he was right. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God among his creatures would sin against the bountiful creator of this marvel and would collaborate in the expulsion from paradise. Hitler also understood that race mixing caused the fall of the Adamic race from paradise. Where he said on page 142 of Mein Kampf that the sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world. Yes, the original sin, it's race mixing. That's what it is. And it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. The offspring of such disaster surely shall not see the kingdom of heaven. It's the offspring of such disaster to whom Christ said, I know not from where you are. That is why those people are rejected in this parable. At John 3, 3, the words of Christ, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a man should be born from above, unless he has that image of God, which we see only in the Aryan or white Adamic race, unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh. Verse 31. At that hour, some Pharisees came forward to him saying, Depart and go thence, because Herod desires to slay you. Especially in certain Christian identity circles, it is assumed that all Pharisees were evil, right? I, I've seen this too often, right? Because the Pharisees were so often criticized by Christ, and they were, but that doesn't make all Pharisees evil. It's a childish oversimplification to assert so. Here we see that there must have been some good Pharisees warning Christ of the dangers to come. They could not have known that he already knew 
what was going to happen. They sincerely endeavored to do him a good deed, just as the Pharisee Nicodemus approached him at night to confer with him and later even to help bury him. John chapter 3. I had a talk with um, a young friend the other night on TeamSpeak. It was a brief talk. I didn't have a lot of time, but I tried to answer his question. Trevor Jones. Yeah, Trevor, I'll mention your name. He asked me if Paul was a Pharisee and he was afraid that the Pharisee, that Paul was a Jew because Paul was a Pharisee. And that's a common mistake, even in Christian identity, to despise Paul of Tarsus because he was a Pharisee. And he asked me, weren't all the Pharisees Jews? Well, they were Judeans by religion, if you want to call it that, if you want to, if you want to call it the religion of Judea, which is Judaism, which is what the Greeks called it. There's no doubt that's what the Greeks called it because they were only familiar with it through Judea, right? In, in, the, in the Hellenic period. The mistake that a lot of Christian identities make, identists make, the mistake that a lot of identity Christians make, the mistake that whoever taught Trevor about the Pharisees, the mistake that they made was to assume that all Pharisees were evil before the cross. And that is a bad assumption. The Pharisees were a political and religious party in Judea. They were much like the Republicans today are a political and religious party. Their religion is Zionism, and their politics is neocon. <laughs> However you want to say neocon as, as, as a noun, I don't know. As a um, description of a, a political belief, I don't know. I guess it's Zionist which is basically what it is, that, that they're, um, that doesn't make all Republicans evil. Most Republicans are actually decent white people with a Jewish frame of mind, being led around by the nose by Satan, which is the Jew. That doesn't make all Republicans bad people. There can be many good people who are Republicans. And I'm using Republicans as, a, as a, um, an example. I could use Democrat and, and change the term slightly. There are some good people that are Democrats that just don't know any better, right? They were the ancient Sadducees. We have a Jewish frame of mind in this nation. That doesn't make all the people bad. The same thing with Judea in the first century. There was a Jewish frame of mind, but that didn't make all the people bad. There were good Pharisees. Before the cross, after the cross, we must imagine that the gospel is true, that his sheep heard his voice, that at least most of the good people eventually switched to Christianity, and that the Pharisees who were left were the Edomites and Canaanites who rejected him several generations after the cross, one may think that the good blood, since Jews didn't intermarry with Christians or with pagans, that the good blood was subsumed if those people had not converted. But before the cross, there were many good Pharisees, Paul being one of them, 
Nicodemus being another one, Joseph of Arimathea being another one, because it was a political party. These Pharisees here, in Matthew 13, being among them also, in Matthew 13, 31. So we see that they're a good Pharisees. It's a political party. It's not a racial distinction by itself, right? Matthew 13, 32. And he said to them, going, you say, to that fox, behold, Herod being the subject here, right? I cast out demons and shall accomplish cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I am finished. But it is necessary for me today and tomorrow and on the following to proceed. Because it is not allowed that a prophet is to be slain outside of Jerusalem. An examination of the coming chapters in Luke's Gospel reveals that for the next few chapters which record, that after the next few chapters which record didactic material, Christ is about to ride on an ass triumphantly through the city gate into Jerusalem which we see recorded in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, here in Luke chapter 19, and in John chapter 12. Now this did not occur three days before his crucifixion. This statement here in Luke 13.32 did not occur three days before the crucifixion of Christ, which we find put into its proper perspective in time in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, 1, and John 12, 1. We see the triumphal march into Jerusalem with Christ riding on an ass happened six days before the Passover, right? I believe, according to John 12, 1. That's from memory, so I might be a day off. This event probably occurred three days before the triumphal march, which marked the last week of the life of Christ, which we learn in John 12, verse 1. So Christ is saying, it is necessary for me today and tomorrow, and on the following, to proceed. He is saying that, he casts out demons today and tomorrow, and on the third day he is finished. And then he has a week from the period of the triumphal march into Jerusalem to his fulfillment, the fulfillment of his passion on the cross, on the Passover. So he's only saying that he's going to cure people and cast out demons for three more days, and then he's going to enter into Jerusalem. Verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she kills the prophets and stones those being sent to her. How often have I desired to gather your children, by which manner a hen does her chicks beneath her wings, and you desired it not. If, as we saw discussing the words of Christ in Luke chapter 11, 
Concerning those who murdered all of the prophets from Abel through Zechariah, if one race alone can be blamed for these crimes, as Christ states in Luke chapter 11, then Christ must mean that race descended from Cain, which would include the Edomite Jews of his own time. It is clear in the history of Judah and Israel, the people of Israel are blamed for these crimes, but they aren't necessarily the ones who perpetrated them. We should be blamed for everything that we allow wicked people in our nation to do, including these bastards in Washington, D.C. right now. White American people put them there, right? White American people suffered the Jew, suffered the Jewish media, supported it, obeyed it when it told them who to vote for, and white Americans put these bastards in Washington today. Very clear. We did it to ourselves. So we get blamed for it. Well, so it was in ancient times. However, if there's one race to blame for the murder of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, that has to be the race of Cain because only Cain can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. But that also includes all of the Canaanites and Edomites down through history. It is clear in the history of Judah that Canaanites had infiltrated Jerusalem at a very early time. As the prophet Malachi said, and we see this right in the book of Genesis, Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. Malachi 2.11 Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. There we have it. There's an abomination in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. The prophet might be giving us a dual prophecy here. Malachi is the prophet of the second temple. Him, Zechariah, and I believe Habakkuk off the top of my head, but definitely Malachi and Zechariah. They're both prophets of the second temple period. Malachi might be referring back to the, the patriarch Judah and also talking about what was going on in his own time. An abomination is committed in Israel with the marriage of the patriarch Judah to a Canaanite woman and in Jerusalem. And, of course, Jerusalem was not the city of Israel in the days of the patriarch, right? So Malachi might be prophesying the mixing of the people of Judah with Canaanites in the Second Temple period, which we have seen happen in the pages of Josephus, and which we have seen fully evident in the pages of the New Testament, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, as Joshua Christ himself explains in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. More evidence of the corruption of Judah at an early time exists in Jeremiah chapter 2. For my people, from verse 13, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, meaning Yahweh, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, they race mixed, that can hold no water. And from verse 21, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed, 
how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? I know not from where you are. For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Further evidence of this corruption is found in Ezekiel 16, verse 2. Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. What are her abominations? Well, they're listed in verse 3. And say, thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thine activity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And Rebekah said, my heart is troubled for the daughters of Heth. Imagine that. Further evidence is found in the apocryphal story of Susanna, where Daniel upbraids certain priests for being of the seed of Canaan and not of the seed of Judah. And we see that they were actually sexually perverting young women. Imagine that. It's still going on today. In the end of 1 Chronicles, chapter 2, where it says, and I'll read from verse 55, and the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the, the Sukathites, these are the Kenites, the came of Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. The Kenites were scribes in Jerusalem all the way back in the beginning. The Hittites infiltrated Jerusalem, as Ezekiel tells us in chapter 16. The people of Judah were race-mixing, as Jeremiah explains in Jeremiah chapter 2. From all these scriptures, we should be able to determine the nature of the good and bad figs of Jeremiah chapter 24. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh, after that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, what seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Kind of like Genesis chapter 3, right? Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. The good figs are of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart, they shall become Christians eventually. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith Yahweh, so I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, 
and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and then that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will remove them, I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a proverb and a reproach, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword and famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and their fathers. Verse 35 of Luke 13. Behold, your house is left to you. The Codex Beze has, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, which only a portion of the manuscripts of the majority text follow, as does the King James Version and those manuscripts upon which it was based. All of the other ancient manuscripts want the word desolate. Behold, your house is left to you. And I say to you, by no means may you see me until, you shall, until it shall come when you say, Blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. A quote from Psalm 118. And I'll read from verse 19 of that psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will, go in, I will go into them, and I will praise Yahweh, this gate of Yahweh into which the righteous shall enter. Strive to enter in through the narrow gate. The answer to what that means is found in Genesis 3.22. Lest a man reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever. Unless the man mate with those of his own race and live forever. Christ being the tree of life, he is the vine, and we are the branches. Real simple. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Yahweh, O Yahweh, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you out of the house of Yahweh. God is Yahweh, which has showed us light. He's the light coming to society. Bind the sacrifice with cords. He made for us the final sacrifice. Even under the horns of the altar, thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Thank you for listening. Next week, Luke chapter 14, I'll be giving my presentation from the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'll be on the road. The week after next, September 14th, Pastor Mark Downey is going to fill in for me. He's going to have Pastor Ken Lent from Virginia, and the topic of discussion is going to be, I think Mark told me, the Christian Constitution, an excellent topic and one that I am sure I would agree with in response to clowns like Ted Wheeland. Tomorrow, in the afternoon, 
I will be on the White Network with Carolyn Yeager at 2 p.m. Eastern Time for an hour, the first half of her program, discussing my latest Saxon Messenger editorial, the demise of free speech on the Internet, and the issues relating to the problems that we are having with the ADL. Tomorrow night I will be here with Sword Brethren. We will be discussing an article by Mark Weber. I'm taking a departure from my usual content. President Roosevelt's campaign to incite war in Europe, the secret Polish documents. We've mentioned these documents on programs, the Pataki documents and, and related papers, I believe. And, and um, the proof that all of the of all of the treachery that Franklin Roosevelt had actually perpetrated to get us into the Second World War and, and to hurt National Socialist Germany. So we'll be discussing that tomorrow night. It'll probably be a topic that spans several Saturdays. Thank you for listening. Good night. Praise Yahweh. God bless you all.